Hello and welcome to episode 15 of season two of Logicast. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined as always by my colleague John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm okay. I'm warm. It's warm in the shed today. Spring is definitely springing in the UK. The sun is shining. That's what we like to see. We're also joined today uh, for the first time by a very special guest, uh, fellow AWS community builder, Johannes Koch. How are you doing today, Johannes? Hey, doing great, Carl. Thanks a lot for having me on the show, and it's a great honor to be the first one. You're very welcome. So tell us a bit about yourself, Johannes. Why, why are you here? Why do we think you might know a bit about AWS? Oh, that's uh, that's too much uh, too much good things about me uh, right before the starting, right? So I don't know if I know much about AWS, right? But I'm a community builder. I started last year, um, so I'm the program uh, that you both are as well. Uh, besides being in the community active, um, also as a YouTuber and a blogger, uh, I'm also um, working as a DevOps engineer in an American company, in an American organization. Uh, we are building a platform for analytic decisioning. Uh, and I'm part of that platform team as well. Um, yeah, and I've been in the community for quite a while. So I'm uh, also helping to organize AWS Community Day in Germany, right? Uh, where, by the way, the call for papers is still open. Um, and we're also actively looking for sponsors. So, Carl, maybe if you have a few <laughs> dollars left, uh, we're going to take them as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm deep into the program. And it's really fun to meet people like you and uh, get to know you. Great, thanks for that intro. And uh, no, I'm really... taking all of his spare dollars, the mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was thinking is uh, we had offered a bribe of some swag for Johannes coming onto the podcast. So maybe instead of sending a t shirt, we can send you a few dollars towards the community day. I'm not sure how much that's going to help, but uh, you know. Yeah, but you can also sponsor the t shirts for the, all of the attendees, right? So that's another option as well. <laughs> Do we get our logo on there? If we get our of logo course, on there, then, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk afterwards. Okay, well, uh, so we're not here to uh, broker deals for AWS Community Day Germany. We are here actually to talk about AWS news. So as you know, if you listen to the podcast, uh, once a week, um, I collate a list of AWS news, which I send out via my AWS News Roundup newsletter. Uh, and then John and I pick a subset of those articles that we would like to talk about. Uh, and this week, we're also going to talk about them with Johannes. So uh, the first of those articles... Um, is uh, from one of our favorite news sites, InfoQ, um, and uh, it's by AWS hero Renato Lozio, uh, and it's about a new service uh, called uh, Amazon VPC Lattice, uh, which is now going into general availability, uh, new capabilities for service-to-service -service connectivity. So, John, tell us a little bit about VPC Lattice. Well, we touched on this when it was announced at reInvent, but the, the short version is it's kind of like a service mesh, but for within VPCs and for across VPCs and all that kind of thing. So you typically find service meshes in things like Kubernetes, Istio being the example, where it just makes communication between things a lot easier. You don't have to muck around with all the routing and all that kind of thing. VPC Lattice is sort of doing the same thing, but for within your AWS account. And if you dig past the article and into actually looking into what VPC Lattice is, the idea is it sits in the same family as that non-VPN connection thing, whatever that's called. So you've got better um, security options and, and simplified networking and all the rest of it so that your engineering types don't have to spend quite so long on the networking and just kind of get on and build stuff. That's sort of the idea. But here it's gone GA, so it's come out of the first... Um, iteration and there's been a few changes as you'd expect they've come up with a pricing model now which is always the first thing they do before um 
you know, it, it goes in preview, it's free, it goes to GA, there's pricing because, you know, they've got to make money somewhere. It's not cheap, it's not expensive. Um, and as ever, it's not available in every region because it's a brand new service. So right now we've got Ohio, Northern Virginia, Oregon Island and Singapore. If you want to spend a lot of money, you can put it on in Singapore. Um, but, you know, finance shops can't use this because it's not in London or <laughs> Munich or wherever, because it's like, you know, we must stay in this region. Soz can't, because it's only in a couple of other places. But yeah, that's the the TLDR. Um, I don't know how much I can actually talk about this, because it's a little bit outside of my area. So, Johannes, I don't know if you've got anything to say. Well, I'm not sure, but let's start with talking about Renato, who actually lives in Berlin, uh, as you might not know. Um, so I met him uh, at uh, the summit last year. He's a great person as well. Um, so uh, about Latish, right? I think the, the most interesting thing here will be, can I use it to um, actually make my connectivity a little bit simpler? Right. So if I'm able to seek your applications, web application or any other kind of applications by using Latish and then integrating with organizations and single sign-on, right? then this might be a cool thing because it could replace third-party solutions like Zscaler or endpoint protection services that you guys have. Right? I don't have experiences with using it either, uh, but uh, maybe uh, that's an opportunity to use it. I don't know. That's an interesting point, actually, because the article does go on to talk about the costs. And uh, there's a number of people quoted in there that are kind of contrasting it with other AWS services and pointing out that it's more expensive. But actually, if you're going to be able to retire some third party services, then potentially that's where, um, you know, a, a cost saving could come in. Um, and uh, I guess uh, the whole purpose of this is it's simpler than cobbling together a bunch of already existing AWS services. Perhaps that's why AWS are charging a bit more for it, because as always, they're taking some of the heavy lifting away. There's probably an element of that, I think. Um, it's private link. That's the thing. It says it in the article. That's the other thing. Um, and there's my cat's tail again. Morning. Um, that happens every week. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. Go over there. Um, so, yeah, it's private link. And again, it's in the same kind of category it's in the same sort of pricing model, so it's not cheap, but it's not horrific. Um, and I think it sits in the we need everything to be in AWS sort of space. So, I mean, CICD tools is a great example of this. You know, GitHub, GitLab are generally better than things like CodeCommit, CodePipeline. But if you need to stay in AWS's ecosystem, you're kind of stuck with them. So this feels like that a little bit. I think you're just trying to trigger Johannes there with those uh, comparisons <laughs> of uh, CICD services. But I think he might have frozen for a bit. So uh, uh, maybe uh, you, you you made him so mad with that comment that uh, he decided I to drop off stream. the call. And uh, yeah, I was just saying, no, uh, Johannes, that no, no. Uh, John, John perhaps triggered you with those comments about CICD services and then you, just, you disappeared. So yeah. yeah, I think I warned you about that. My endpoint protection somehow decided to restart overall, right? So that's strange. Now the CICD services didn't trigger me, right? I think um, the more that you need to, uh, invest into getting them into uh, working the, the harder it is, right? And I'm not yet understanding how Latish simplifies that stuff for you, right? So um, reading reading the announcements, reading the GA, reading the article, right? For me, it's directly not clear how it will benefit from it, but I know that a lot of people were very excited about it when it got announced. Um, so as you said, John, it's the first iteration of a service, right? We'll need to see where AWS wants to go with it. 
uh, what they want to actually do and what they're aiming for. Uh, and maybe that's not that's not yet 100% clear to, to us at the moment. Cool. Well, watch this space uh, for further announcements and perhaps some case studies and some use cases on VPC Lattice. Let's skip on to the next article uh, for discussion this week. Um, and this one is about modernizing um, and uh, moving towards a, a cloud native future. So the title of the article um, is uh, Modernizing Containers Are Not Enough. You Need Cloud Native. Um, interestingly enough, this is on the Cloud Native Now website. So what else would they be talking about other than cloud native? Uh, but I guess this is a kind of an extension of the old discussion of moving your VMs to the cloud is not really cloud. Uh, you know, once you're there, uh, you then need to think about how you're going to modernize and, and leverage some of those true cloud native technologies. So some people think moving their VMs to the cloud and then putting everything in containers uh, uh, makes it cloud native. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's obviously not the case. So um, the article goes on to talk about a number of steps uh, to, to sort of move beyond containers to cloud native. So what, what are your thoughts on this one, John? There's a whole Dilbert cartoon about this, wasn't there? <laughs> there was one about Kubernetes. Yeah, it's that, that one. It, it is, it's that one. one. Yeah. It's, you can't just say technical words and expect it to do magic. Kubernetes. Kubernetes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting one. It's it's a bit of a clickbaity headline. I don't like that word, but that's kind of how it feels. It's you need yeah. to do this. Containers are not inherently cloud native, but they're not not suitable for cloud right putting a vm in the cloud is not cloud native it's just using aws as a data center instead containers can be because they can run serverlessly fargate being the the thing you use to do that in aws i don't know what the others are called but so it they can be containers can be part of a microservices architecture because in certain cases you might have something that runs longer than the lambda 15 minute limit or it might not be suitable for a step function or you might not have the time to invest in re-architecting but it just needs to get done now it is interesting though that they talk about it right because containers are not enough no they're not right because if you just go oh look rds great that's not cloud native aurora kind of is no sql databases are a lot better in that and then it talks about cloud native services and tools and then it starts talking about CICD which used to be my bag but Johanna's is rather better at that than I am I think yeah I'm not sure so I think this article I, I when I read it, it it kind of sounded like yeah clickbait but then at the end there's no real conclusion in it right some of the things that they painted for me was not like um what I believe that is the right thing when modernizing your applications. And I think I recently wrote an article about that in another blog that I can also share with you guys. Um, the, the main thing for me really is you don't go to the cloud to be in the cloud. And that's something that a lot of uh, articles do kind of wrong, uh, right? You need to have a specific purpose. And if you want to go to a public cloud and modernize your application, then just putting things into microservices and putting them into containers would not really will not really help you, right? And that's kind of what the what the article tries to outline. So I did not really like this article uh, from that perspective, right? Uh, very honest, right? Uh, yes, the automation pieces are important, but they come as a step four, right? And that's for me wrong. You need to start with automating your stuff, and then you can think about automation, and then you can think about modernizing your stuff because. Without automation, 
any modernization will actually also fail, right? Because you will still fall in the same cracks as before, where you have manual steps involved, where you need to think about how do I provision this container? How do I update this uh, instance of a container and these kind of things? So uh, for me, uh, the order is a little bit wrong in the way that they outline this, right? Um, containers on the one side can be a way towards modernization because they can make things easier if you not don't feel natively working lambdas, building lambdas and stuff like that, right? Um, it's ahead, an interesting ben. take. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting take. It's uh, my cat's jumped on the desk again. Jeez, <laughs> such a limelight hog. <laughs> it's an interesting take because you're not wrong. I've seen bad microservices architectures every day of the week, right? It's, oh, we use microservices. Yes, but you still have this controller in the middle that's pulling everything so what you have is a split monolith it's not it's not microservices you know if that dies everything dies if this service dies everything dies so it's not it's just a split monolith yeah. so yeah you're not wrong it's not the be all and end all and, and, and i would yeah. kind of agree with your point around reordering it because one of the quicker wins from this i would say is um go databases first right because aurora done done move yeah. on yeah, and, and and the last step that they call out as step six, right? I think that needs to be on the same level as the others, right? Because you cannot say modernization without changing the way that you deliver and the way that you work on software, right? So they call that out as point number six in the article. For me, no, it, it that's where you need to start thinking about how do I want to build software going forward? How do I want to push software going forward if I want to modernize, right? Um, so that's, that's kind of, uh, that's what I said, right? The article was a good read, but uh, for me, um, and sorry, Carl, I know that you picked it, right? For me, there is a, a lot of things that I would have done different when trying to explain that modernization approach. You don't have to like the articles, Johannes. We quite often tear them to, to bits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're just discussion points, right? So, uh, yeah, we're, we're not necessarily here to promote the articles. We're just here to talk about them. Uh, one thing I did like about Step 6, though, is uh, I actually learned a new acronym. Uh, STOSA was a new one on me. Um, that's, uh, that's a five-letter acronym. Um, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I love my acronyms. I've built my entire career just on acronyms and uh, knowing what they stand for. So uh, I've got a new acronym in the bank, STOSA. That, that's how you become CEO, you know? Um, exactly, no, yeah. I thought you did that just by starting a business. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You need to know all acronyms, John, and then you one day get promoted. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't start a business in IT unless you've got a good uh, vocabulary of acronyms in your in your brain. Unfortunately, so if this is yeah. where I ask you what ASDA stands for or used to stand for, Carl. Uh, no, I don't know what ASDA stands for because it's not an IT acronym, um, and uh, and I'm not sure whether this is leading for a joke or not. No, not really. It's associated dairies. Ah. Well, I've also I've always known since very very young age, pre-internet, what laser stands for: light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. It was in a book of a thousand and one question and answers that I got for Christmas at age about six, and uh, I, and, I, and I memorized it. So I guess this they had ability... books when you were six. Yeah, they, they had books. No computers. <laughs> they, just have they books. done the printing press yet? <laughs> it was. Uh, you used to get annuals at Christmas. I don't know if you're too young for that, John. But every Christmas, oh, uh, I think I got everybody brought out uh, an annual, and it was like a hardback book, and uh, you would always get several annuals for Christmas. 
Um, so that's where I learned what laser stood for. And that was the beginning of my acronym memorizing career. So there we go. Awesome. So you can talk to David Spitsky. He runs the developer podcast from AWS as well, right? He's also a fan of acronyms, if you listen to it. And I've recently uh, recorded with him as well. Um, he's really also as good as that. Yeah, I actually, I, that'd be great. I love making up my own acronyms as well. And uh, I've, I've, we're going on a motorbike tour later this year and I've made up an acronym for that. Um, and uh, my, my biker mates, uh, we, we call ourselves Team Flossie and we're doing the uh, UK ACT, Adventure Country Tracks. So it's Flossie UK Adventure Country Tracks. I'm not going to say the acronym out loud because it sounds rude. <laughs> uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, moving swiftly on. Uh, oh, to, yes, the next, to the please. next article uh, we're going to talk about today. Sorry about that. Uh, so moving swiftly on, uh, the next article is uh, from the AWS Compute blog, um, and it is about understanding techniques to reduce AWS Lambda costs in serverless applications. So, John, you love Lambda. Uh, we know that Lambda uh, is a, a cost-effective way to run your services in AWS, uh, but uh, you, like all AWS services, you can spend more on it than you need to. So um, let's take a look at some of the, uh, the ways in which you can make sure that your lambdas are cost optimized. So this is a fun one. As, I, as every time it comes up, I like to get the plug in that I'm a community builder in the serverless category. So this is my bag. This is absolutely my bag. And some of the tools in this I've used before, which is also fun. <laughs> um, but, so, yeah. come on, there's a but. Yeah, I mean, there's well... <laughs> There's always a but, but I'm usually sitting on it. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a fun one, right? Because ninety percent of Lambda deployments that I've come across, and there's a smattering of them, don't breach the free tier. So kind of why bother, right? Well, you're bothering not for cost reasons. You're bothering for optimization reasons, because you could, in theory, just turn the wheel and give everything five gig of, of memory and go. That'll do, and it'll probably work and it'd be fine. But you're using more of that free tier then you need to or you might actually start breaching that free tier or if you're actually using a lot of this which some of our customers are i think one of them has got a deployment of something like 200 lambdas in net which is probably not the fastest executing thing out there so it's important to get this right some of the tooling out there is aws backed and some of it isn't so the lambda power tuner isn't it's an open source project and i've used it before it's where the very nice graph from the article comes from and what it does is it overlays execution time with execution cost you deploy this tool into your um into your account ideally in your dev account it deploys a step function and you run that step function you give it the arn of the lambda whether you want to run x86 or graviton and the various memory points you want it to test it goes off it runs all of them collects all the data into, I think, a Dynamo table, sends it off somewhere else, spits out a, a URL, and you can go to that URL, and you get that very pretty graph. And it gives you the the point where your lines intersect is probably your close to where your kind of numbers are going to be pretty good or where your lines are quite close to each other, right? Because it's overlaying cost on one axis with time on the other, and you can just ramp all the numbers up and get you get the fastest execution time or you can have the lowest execution cost and you kind of want somewhere in the middle of that what they did do and it's not spoken about here but it does talk about graviton is that tool also has a way of um saying you know do you want to run graviton or do you want to run x86 because some workloads aren't great for graviton lots of them are brilliant anything that's yeah. high io or compute bound love it 
The odd thing isn't, I found, that tended to be image manipulation, where it was kind of more GPU-bound. It really struggled there. But yeah, so that's the first one. And I do find it interesting that they talk about it, because it's not an AWS tool. So this is personal growth on behalf of the blog, I think. And the other one is the Compute Optimizer. And the Compute Optimizer just kind of runs. It's on everything. runs all the time. You have to turn it on, but... It is what it is. And that sits there in the background and takes a few days and it will eventually give you some information on your overall under-provisioned. But it won't give you that nice pretty graph and that immediate upfront data that's kind of useful. So, yeah, that's that's my brain dump on, on that. Yeah, I'm going to kind of... So, first of all, I think the article is not in the more detailed level. So James has already written articles that were in more details. This kind of keeps it a little bit high level. There is a hundred different possibilities on how to optimize Lambda. And in this case, kind of it touches on a few points, right? Um, so you can optimize for costs even better, even more if you look at cold starts and these kind of things, right? Uh, there is also Lambda Power Tools, an open source project um, that is also kind of run by AWS or at least by Ricardo uh, that does um, Power Tools is a funny one because it varies depending on the language. That's true. That's true. Uh, still, you can use it for helping you to do the right cost optimizations, right? But for me, the most important question that stands out here, right, is why do I as a serverless developer need to think about this? Why cannot the platform do this for me? Right. So they, AWS has so much AI tools. They could just find out what is the right sizing for my for my Lambda function. And this will be different for Python than it will be for TypeScript than it will be for Java. Right. Uh, and they, from my perspective, AWS can or should build this in for me. Right. In terms of not forcing I'm, it. I'm not sure. I, it. Yeah. Guiding is probably the right term. Yeah. Right. And I guess what that's trying to, that's what they're trying to do with the compute optimization with the, whatever it's called. I think that's what it's called. Compute optimizer. Um, yeah. yeah, that one. Um, but I think it takes too long. But then, you know, how long, how many executions does it need to get data and all that kind of thing? When you use, say, the power tuner, it's running, I think, by default, 10 executions of every memory point that you put in it. So you could get 100 executions fairly quickly and get some good data. So that, I think, is the difference. Of course, the power tuner has this distinct problem. I have this, where if you're calling um, downstream APIs or databases or whatever that can't scale very quickly, then it will just bottleneck up and you've got to go and do it the hard way. But. Yeah, but that's, that's what I expect from the management layer, right? So they, mm -hmm. from my perspective, they could build in something that uses AI to recognize how your Lambda function behaves based on the input and stuff like that, and then right-size it automatically for you, right? And then you also would also pay for that that pieces only, right? Um, and I know that that's maybe too, too much of an ask, and that takes away another thing that we can use to to deliver better software, right? Uh, but having this included as part of the... And then... I don't know, optimizing it once per hour or optimizing it uh, once every 30 minutes, right? Or at least providing your input on how to optimize it, right? That would already help a lot of people that are not as detailed as you are, John. <laughs> it's a good, well, I mean, I only am because I moved from platform engineering to serverless development and I kind of sit sort of in the middle of that. So that's kind of why I do this. It is a good point though, because the, the strap line, the tagline for Lambda was run code without thinking about servers. Well, you're not thinking about servers, but you're still thinking about infrastructure. You're still thinking about resources. So it is a very good point. Cool. Well, on that good uh, 
piece of agreement there on that good point. Let's segue nicely on to the next article we wanted to talk also, about Also, don't today. use Java. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not we- sure about that, John. Let's, 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 <laughs> let's discuss about that offline. So I had a great talk yesterday on my meetup. So I run a, an AWS meetup as well, uh, where uh, Vadim, another community builder, was talking about Lambda cold starts and Snapstart and that kind of stuff. Right, and uh, even so, you might not like Java, right? There's still people like me who like to use it because they feel comfortable and uh, they have used it for a few years. And it also takes away a lot of burden, right, from from you, from my perspective. But as I said, that's maybe maybe when we have a Snapstart article, uh, Carl, you can bring me back into the show, and then we can have a conversation and a debate on that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we will. So, um, yeah, let's move on to the next article for today, though, uh, which is about um, Bedrock. Nothing to do with the Flintstones uh, nor the uh, John Digweed house music label. Uh, this is actually a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, he's st- John Digweed's still going, but he has had some plastic surgery. I don't know if you've seen John Digweed lately or if you even know who I'm talking about, but go and have a look online at pictures of John Digweed from back in the day and how he <laughs> looks now and uh, make your draw your own opinions. Anyway, uh, we're actually here to talk about Amazon's Bedrock, uh, which is a game-changing AI cloud service powering the future of tech um so um interesting one this um you know obviously huge amounts of press at the moment about ai chat gpt grabbing most of the headlines etc this is not really a uh, chat gpt competitor necessarily uh, more of a foundation hence i guess the name bedrock um, for other people to go and build services like chat gpt uh, but uh, yeah what, what are your thoughts on this one guys I've used some of the managed services in the AI space before, but obviously this is brand new, so I have no major comment on that. The ones I've used before, things like recognition and stuff that just use pre-baked models and you just kind of hit an API and say, tell me what's here, please. This is an interesting one. I think you're right that it's not a ChatGPT competitor, but it would be a competitor for the thing that ChatGPT is running on, is I think where this market is. So my thoughts on this one are they announced too early but they did better than google um so why <laughs> so google released something into the wild with which was not ready to go uh, amazon on the other side made a big press around we are doing things even better and blah 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 they announced something but no one can use it so for me this at the moment it's useless um and uh, until uh, we can actually get our hands on it and play around with it no one can say where this is going to go right at the end what they said, as far as I understood the press releases, they are going to give us builders the tools at hand to build something like ChatGPT if we want to or do whatever we want with that. But unless we start playing around with it, it's not really helpful to anyone, right? And I think that's where the, the cruise is going to be, right? How much are we going to pay? Uh, how can we get access to it? How can we interact with it? How can we provision it in the infrastructure and all of these kind of stuff? They haven't answered that, uh, which is why I think that they announced this to do something like a Me Too, uh, uh, but at least three months too early. But that's my personal take. So um, don't know, Carl. Would you would you would you have done the same thing? 
I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, perhaps I, I think what you're getting at is it's a Me Too article. You know, everyone else is uh, getting a lot of coverage in this space. So, you know, <laughs> we've also got something we need to be out there talking about it. So, yeah, perhaps that uh, very much uh, is the case here. Um, but it, it also kind of segues quite neatly into our last article um, about uh, AWS uh, growth. Um and uh, there's some very conservative forecasts um, about AWS's growth, uh, perhaps being only 6% um, this year uh, in terms of year-on-year revenue growth, um, whereas uh, the previous year, I think it was something like 22% year-on-year Yeah, revenue and they complained growth. about that too. Yeah, um, so, uh, you know, growth is slowing. Uh, but as we've said before, John, they, these are still enormous numbers. You know, 6% on top of $80 billion is another $5 billion, which is a, still a massive amount of growth. But, uh, yeah, the reason I kind of segued into that article is, uh, you know, Johannes, you, you, you made a, a great point um, before we came on air um, that, uh, you know, this the, the bedrock is a potential growth opportunity for AWS. Um, so, um, you know, perhaps the media strategy is uh, to, to counter some of this negative press um, around the growth slowing to say, hey, maybe the growth is slowing. But look, guys, we've got plenty of other stuff uh, in the pipeline for you. Yeah. On the other side, uh, slowing down to 6% is what other people would love to get. Right, so I think uh, it's it's even seeing that number decrease, right? It might, from an investor's perspective, it might look bad, right? But there's other people that are cutting people at fifty by fifty percent, right? There's other people that are stopping business because they see the economic go down. Uh, so um, I think AWS should stop. Well, investors of AWS should also stop complaining about that. We somehow need to right size the mindset as well, right? Um, someday the cloud growth will. St- be over 20%, right? Why? Because most of the things will be in the cloud and we cannot move everything into the cloud again, right? Uh, And I think uh, that they will come, right, Uh, someday. And it might be this year, it might be next year, we don't know, but um, uh, somehow we'll reach that. I think the other thing is there's a huge push for modernization and all of this modernization that we're talking about, you know, cloud native services inherently cost less than running your VMs in the cloud. So if you are going from VMs to containers, that's less revenue for the cloud provider. If you are going from containers to serverless, that's less revenue for the cloud provider. But actually, the cloud provider is providing a huge amount more value to your business, so those services become much stickier. Um, So although the revenue growth is slowing, the revenue that is there is stickier revenue for the It's funny you say that because fairly recently, tangent, the um, UK Competition and Markets Authority said that they're investigating the big three cloud providers because of how sticky their services are, cost of switching, cost of entrance for new players, yeah. all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I've always been on the multi-cloud is a nonsense, changing regions is hard enough, just pick one and go all in. Um, yes, I'm quoting Corey Quinn a little bit, but I do share the opinion. If you're not taking advantage of the cloud native and the serverless services, you are shooting yourself in the foot. So I'll be very interested to see what the CMA come out with, but you're not wrong. It's less revenue, but it's stickier revenue. It's more recurring revenue. It's, it's not, Oh, I need a server for the next 10 minutes. It's here. I'm running everything in lambdas and they run fundamentally differently than Google cloud functions, for instance. Yeah. On the other side, I've seen a few articles talking about we're moving off the cloud. So I don't know if that's a thing, right? Um, we we 
rail against cloud repatriation articles because they get, I mean, I rail against them because they get a lot more noise than it's actually worth. I can think of three actual examples of people doing cloud repatriation, and that was Dropbox storage. That was Zynga, who you may or may not have heard of, but they do lots of mobile games and stuff, and they were getting hammered by um, egress fees. And whoever it was we spoke about the last time, it was last week, I think we spoke about it, and I forget who they were because they were just forgettable. But the uh, um, 37 Signals, that was them. Um, And they've had good reasons for doing it, but it's very much not a thing. It's not a theme. So... I, I think so too, especially if you look at the developers, right, that really get into doing serverless and removing abstractions, right? Um, so I, I'm, I'm really not sure, right? So coming back to the article, right, I think 6% growth is good. We, we should stop, AWS should stop mourning about that, right? Uh, they should get more people uh, in AWS to support us builders and uh, instead of uh, getting people out of the organization, right? Um, but that's just, as I said, my personal thoughts. Um, and um, yeah, they should be pretty happy. It's funny because every engineer I've ever spoken to has had a similar sort of opinion. It's the market has this voracious ap- ap- appetite for growth and builders just want to build things and it's kind of the traditional business versus the listed business the traditional business we build things we make things we sell things we're quite Mm, happy with that we're making some money we might be growing a little bit we might not be growing but everyone's getting paid right yeah yeah and and now john i think it's the right time let's talk about your salary increases over the last two years (laughs) was it more than 22 percent um okay I don't think John's ever stayed in a job for more than a year. On that note, uh, we, we have unfortunately come to the end of our time for today's episode. Um, so we'll wrap up there. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your input, Johannes. Very insightful. Uh, thanks as always to John as well. Um, so that was uh, season two, episode 15 of Logicast. We'll be back next week with another episode for you. Thanks for listening.